When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two of the most precious things that we have in this day and age is time and money, and often for a lot of people, we are wasting them both. That's why this podcast is going to hopefully save you time, save you money, and give you actual evidence-based science so you can live your life in a better way and hopefully keep your wallet nice and full. This is The Referral, a brand new health and science podcast with me, Dr. Curran. I'm a surgeon in the NHS. Everything that you hear online that's not evidence-based, I'm going to be cutting through the bullshit, and especially in this episode, real crap. On today's show, we have Dr. Blair Merrick. He's a clinical research fellow and also coordinator of the Fecal Microbiota Transplantation Ferraro Trial. In very simple terms, poo transplants, taking poo from one person and chucking it inside another person. Keep watching if you want to find out if you have good gut bugs, if you are a super pooper, if you want to find out all of that, keep watching and I'll tell you the tips how you can become a God-level pooper. We now are kind of understanding that the kind of bacteria and other things in our gut are intimately linked to our overall health. Every day in the hospital as a doctor and surgeon, I constantly get asked questions from patients and staff as well. And that's why I'm going to be opening the floor to my guest to ask me questions. While I'm, you know, knuckle deep inside her, she says, she turns around, she looks at me and says, I follow you on Instagram and you at home. I get nosebleeds three times a month. Is that normal or should I be worried? And if you want to get in touch and ask a burning question, you can get in contact at thereferralpod.com. Also in the run-up, if it ducks like a quack, this is my favorite segment. I'll be debunking and demystifying all of the bullshit, forgive the pun, myths that you're going to hear today about poo. You have a massive dump which makes you feel incredible afterwards, that's probably not good because you're probably not going enough. But first, what the health? What the health is going on in the world of health, science and medicine? What the health? You're going to want to listen to this because this is all about how to reverse your age if you've got millions to spend. It's fascinating. What if I told you there was a man who was trying to get the rectum of an 18-year-old? And to achieve that, he's spending $2 million a year and he's recruited a team of 30 scientists to optimize every facet of his life. So he's worth around $400 million, so clearly he's got a lot of money. Let's see what he's actually doing. Some of the things include exercising for an hour a day. Now, that's not going to reverse your age, but certainly delay neurodegeneration, loss of muscle, loss of bone density. So that is a proven anti-aging or at least delaying aging therapy. He's got a vegan diet with precisely 1,977 calories that has no proven benefit. But certainly, if someone is significantly overweight, reducing calories can help to improve their metabolic profile and may help to improve their blood markers and maybe prolong their life. He also goes to sleep and wakes up at exactly the same time every day. Now, I've always gone on about the importance of a sleep routine. Waking up and sleeping at the same time every day is crucial for developing a good sleep habit. So this, I'm fully on board with. 
Now this next one is highly spurious and actually quite dangerous, much like a lot of the stuff he does, it's a lot of pseudoscience and not really based in much evidence. So he's aiming to infuse the plasma from his 17 year old son into his body to give him some sort of youthful look and eternal life essentially. Now plasma exchange and plasma therapy is used in some liver conditions, blood clotting conditions and even burns, but it's not proven as an anti-aging therapy and in fact it can be downright dangerous. Now, this is based on some science, but in humans, it doesn't really add up. There were some gruesome studies done on mice where they took younger mice and stitched them to older mice, literally stitched them together so they were one big giant mega rat. And there were some markers in improvements in cognition and circulation seen in the older mouse because it shared some of the circulation from the younger mouse. Now, we know that mice studies and rat studies don't always translate to humans, so don't stitch yourself to another human being and don't take young blood from another human being. It's just not going to work. This story is going to blow your mind. It's ridiculous. Okay, so neurosurgery, brain surgery, is complex to say the least. But imagine if your patient was still inside the womb. Yep, surgeons have successfully performed the first ever brain surgery in a fetus inside the womb. The fetus was just 34 weeks old and the surgeons used ultrasound guidance to help them access the brain. The fetus they were operating on was diagnosed with vein of Galen malformation. Now, this is the geeky science bit for all you science lovers out there. Basically, your arteries uh, join onto your veins, but in the middle, they have to go through capillaries. The role of the capillaries is to almost buffer and slow down the blood so it reduces your blood pressure. They perform a crucial role. In vein of Galen malformation, the arteries just plug in directly into the veins without those capillaries. So you still have that really high blood pressure going into the veins so that person can suffer with heart and lung issues like heart failure and in some cases it can be life-threatening. Following surgery the child was born and so far there seems to be no abnormalities in their growth at all. This was done as part of a trial but proof of concept here that it works and this could be used for way more congenital malformations and other high-risk procedures which could be life-threatening. I can't emphasize how insane this is. Hello listeners of The Referral, it's me, Dr. Curran. Are you tired of scouring the internet for medical answers only to end up on shady websites? Is your For You page full of TikTok experts pushing miracle weight loss drugs and superfoods? There's so many myths and nonsensical health advice out there on the internet, but on our weekly crowd science episodes, I'm helping real listeners like you get the truth. Subscribe to the Referral Plus and you'll get access to additional crowd science episodes every week devoted entirely to answering your questions. Plus, as an added bonus, you'll enjoy ad-free listening of all our episodes. You can even try it for free. Just head over to the Referral Show page on Apple Podcasts and click on the Try Free button at the top of the page to start listening today. Have a question of your own? Visit theReferralPod.com and submit it. There is no question too weird or too awkward for me. So what are you waiting for? Don't let the internet deceive you. Subscribe now to the Referral Plus and start getting answers today. Fun fact, the cells in your intestine contain tiny biological clocks that influence what time of the day you want to go for a poo. Today, we're going to be talking all about the grisly, stinky world of poo and specifically poo transplants. Now, some people are absolutely disgusted by poo. Some people 
love talking about poo and some people think that their shit doesn't stink. And with me today, I've got Dr. Blair Merrick. He's a clinical research fellow at the Fecal Microbiota Transplantation Unit at Guy's in St. Thomas's Hospital. Blair, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. How are you? Uh, I'm great, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Tell me how and why you became a poop scientist. So uh, I'm a, a doctor by background. My training is in infectious diseases and general medicine. And kind of from that, I have then taken time out of training and uh, the projects that were kind of available to, to do research in, well, faecal microbiota transplantation was one of them. And, and the reason is, is that St. Thomas's Hospital is one of these units that manufactures uh, faecal microbiota transplants or FMT. Yeah. Uh, administers them to patients and also is involved in in research studies. Um, there aren't many units across the UK that do that, yeah. so it was just lucky to be there. And there's this huge, almost hidden world of people doing DIY uh, microbial transplants, you know, sort of getting their friends or families uh, poops and somehow uh, getting it inside them. But for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about when we talk about poo transplants, breaking it down very simply... It's nowadays can it's what a, a ground ground up uh, or sort of dried ground up uh, feces that contain good bacteria potentially and given in either a capsule form a crapule or a colonoscopy. Yeah, those are the two kind of main delivery methods. Essentially, I mean, I mean it's it's all in the name fecal microbiota transplantation. So fecal, it's it's de derived from. Feces, stool, poo, crap, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Microbiota is essentially the term given to all of the living organisms in a particular area. So in feces, we're looking mainly at bacteria, but also viruses, fungi, mm. parasites, all sorts of things. And the, and the kind of small molecules they produce, the metabolites. Yeah. And then transplantation, taking it from one person and giving it to another, hopefully a healthy person and giving it to somebody who has a problem that we can make better. Um we essentially, from the feces, want to get rid of kind of the stuff that we don't want, which is mainly the undigested food. Yeah. And in the case of capsules, we want to get rid of basically all of the water yes. because uh, with the capsules, you obviously want to minimise the number that you have to take. So um, the the initial capsules were what we call like wet kind of capsules um, and people would have to take maybe 25 capsules. Bigger as well. Quite big, they? yeah. yeah. Um, we've developed at St. Thomas's a, a, a lyophilized form, so that's freeze-dried, so we've taken out all the water and we've kind of got it down to about five capsules. Um, that's kind of one treatment. Key question, what colour is the capsule? <laughs> so the colour of the capsule officially is Swedish orange. Okay. Um, uh, although uh, in a uh, study that we've recently done where we asked kind of participants about their experiences of participating in the study and uh, and about their experience of taking FMT, they they thought it was kind of a joke because the the orange isn't very orange it's more brown uh, and so they were like is this some indication of kind of what we're taking inside, yeah um no the the reason that that we use that color is um that you for studies sometimes we use a dummy medication a placebo yeah. and we needed to make sure you couldn't see through the capsule to see which one was the real thing and which one was so, uh, opaque uh, enough to yeah. disguise the um and also the swedish orange color is vegan um okay. and we didn't want that to kind of preclude people from participating because it you know there was maybe animal products or something in mm. the capsule so that's how we arrived on it and then we didn't really think about the color too much until our participants uh, mentioned it i think um considering that the microbiome has far more genetic data than our human genome 
And considering that we are more microbiome than human cells, yep. you know, sort of one to three ratio, potentially, that's what it's sort of, uh, or, or one to one at least, um, they, they influence a considerable part of our health, our morbidity risk, um, our disease risk, all these sort of things. Um, but using this same mechanistic theory that, okay, the microbiome has this amazing potential to cure all sorts of diseases, we're seeing a lot of pseudoscientists trying to peddle microbiome-related things or, you know, bespoke microbiome probiotic pills or this and that, you know, kind of abusing the power of the microbiome to sell things. Do you see a lot of your patients on these probiotics that they buy in shops or things like that? Yeah, we, we do see a lot of that and um, we get a lot of requests to kind of have um, uh, off-label treatment with FMT. Now, you know, you know, big statement, you know, faecal transplants are not going to suddenly be a cure-all for a whole wide range of conditions and even conditions in which we know that people's kind of gut microbiome is, um, you know, abnormal or dysbiotic mm. um, uh, is a term that's often used. But as you kind of, you know, alluded to, we we now are kind of understanding that the kind of bacteria and other things in our gut are intimately linked to our overall health. Um, rather worryingly, the kind of diversity of all of the organisms in our gut seems to be kind of decreasing generation mm. on generation. And that's probably through, through a multitude of factors. That's probably partly related to our diet, um, the fact that we're using antibiotics more, which as well as kind of maybe treating infections you might be suffering from also kind of kill off the good guys in your gut. Um, and then just medications in general will often have an effect, not just the antibiotics. Um, and your your microbiome is inherited. I yeah. mean, you you get your first dose of your microbiome um, from your mother. Yeah. yeah. Um, so babies that are born by cesarean section have a different microbiome to those that are born vaginally. Vaginal. And those differences can be seen even up to one year of age and maybe beyond. Um, as uh, individuals are kind of, more commonly being born by cesarean section yeah. and we're seeing more of these changes that's kind of one theory as to why kind of some non-communicable uh, communicable diseases like allergies might be becoming more common yeah. um more uh, more urbanization urbanization so yeah. less diversity exposure to yep. you know animals farms things like that all all sorts of those things and so we need to probably find the right balance between kind of exposure to kind of good bacteria and other things in the environment and making sure we keep our microbiomes as diverse as possible as well as staying healthy from obviously not you know getting nasty infections yeah i think i think one of the scariest things that you've mentioned there was basically that we are experiencing an extinction level event for certain species of bacteria in our guts which yeah. is worrying because we're not we seemingly we've not changed much but we have over thousands of years modern day hunter gatherers the hadza tribe in tanzania mm -hmm. I read in a study that they have around 30% of their microbiome are novel species of bacteria that we haven't seen in other populations, which suggests to me exactly what you were saying, that the stresses of modern life and maybe the vices of modern life, ultra-processed foods, stress, you know, emails, bosses, all these sort of things, maybe more of a sedentary lifestyle, not enough exercise, less whole food consumption, all these sort of things, and maybe, you know, all of these other uh, peripheral things like poor sleep, et cetera, et cetera, 
are you know, culling the bacteria that we have. And like we mentioned before, these bacteria are intimately linked with various bits of our health, immune system, gut health, etc. So we are, in some senses, worsening our health, and we can't even see it. Yeah, that's that's the scary thing uh, about it is um, it's all happening inside us, but there's often not really any symptoms of it um, or maybe only many years down the line, like these uh, kind of autoimmune conditions or allergies and things take many years to develop. Um, And we maybe only see it kind of through generations that slightly more people are getting these problems, um, you know, kind of generation on generation. And what's the kind of difference, you know, between that generation and and the one before? Um, Well, a big part of it might be the diversity within our our guts. Shrinking diversity. Yeah. So, I mean... In my day-to-day job, I'm seeing people with inflammatory bowel disease, other gut issues, irritable bowel syndrome. And the things I usually tell them about improving gut health, I keep it very simple. I don't tell them to take probiotics, you know, uh, basically like, you know, papering over the cracks. I suggest things like increasing exercise, which has been known to improve the composition of your gut microbiome favorably. Um, making sure you have a you know fiber rich diet that's more plant heavy rather than meat heavy, uh, because from studies it's been shown that high quantities of red meat can you know worsen the mix of gut uh, bacteria sure. and you know sort of cause increasing inflammation. Uh, but also avoiding unnecessary antibiotics. You know if you've got a cold or flu, that's likely to be viral, not just to pop some antibiotics you might have in your kitchen drawer. Um, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, can also disrupt the microbiome, alcohol, things like that. Is there anything that you've seen from the clinical data and the patients that you see in these trials that suggests that these are things that the average person should be doing to improve their gut microbiome makeup? Um, Well, I think all of the things you mentioned, yeah, really important. And they're all achievable things, I think, for, for most people to do. And I think the really important thing is, is that it's kind of it's small things that are sustainable because there's no point doing with your gut health there's no point doing something for a week a month or even a year it's about making a a change to your lifestyle that's you know sustainable over many years decades and you know big things aren't generally sustainable they need to start as small things um yeah, I mean, agree with all the things that you said. Um, probably adding into that, uh, you know, making sure that you're kind of well hydrated. Mm. So most people probably don't don't drink enough, um, and probably the indi- <laughs> cheers to that. And um, the other thing would be um, maybe the addition of some fermented foods. So things like kefir, kombucha, kimchi, a little bit of that, and that probably kind of fermented foods were part of our diet a bit more in kind of years gone by when we didn't have the preservation techniques like the fridge and the freezer. So even simple things like cheeses, stuff which where the bacteria have already gone to town on, basically. Yeah, Sourdough bread. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, you don't need to buy probiotics, uh, you know, uh, they're often expensive and might be beyond the reaches of individuals. You you know, you don't need to do that. And, uh, you know, with regards to your diet, it's really about diversity. It's about can you kind of introduce as many different things into your diet in kind of a a good balance. So different colours... 
yeah. which have different antioxidants, polyphenols and nutrients. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, any kind of starches you're having, if you can introduce, you know, whole grain ones as, a, as opposed to kind of white ones. So whole grain be- uh, bread, whole grain pasta, keep the skin on potatoes, you know. Yeah. Um, skin on fruit, skin on potatoes, skin yeah. on veg as much as you can, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's these core habits rather than relying on probiotics to basically boost your health. Uh, it's about getting enough exercise, getting enough sleep, 30 grams of fiber a day, a, a range of fibers as well, you know, nuts, seeds, plants, etc. And, you know, going back to the point of exercise, you know, it's been shown that as little as 10 minutes of exercise a day is associated with a health benefit. You know, mm. that's, I think, something that you know, everybody who's, you know, even anybody who's sedentary can kind of introduce that into yes. their lives, you know, whether that's, you know, taking the stairs or, you know, walking or cycling to work or part of their journey, those sorts of things. It's about, you know, integrating it into your, your daily life um, and uh, sticking with it, for, you know, for the long term. I mean, if I look at the role of the microbiome and we know we're, it's well established that your gut is very closely connected, probably as connected to your immune system as anywhere else in the body. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. In your guts. And we know that your microbiome has a role in training your immune system as well. A lot of these uh, proponents of the kind of gut-brain connection suggest that, you know, part of the development of these neurodegenerative conditions like Parkinson and Alzheimer's may be in part related to abnormal microbiome conditions and dysbiosis. Same with some bowel cancers, etc. And if you actually look at the current state of affairs, just within the last 12 months, you've had in the cancer world, you've had dostalimab, which is a monoclonal antibody, which has proven to cure locally advanced rectal cancer without chemotherapy and surgery, published in the New England Journal, just 16 to 18 patients, and also lecanemab, the new uh, drug for Alzheimer's, first ever drug for Alzheimer's shown to slow down the disease process. Uh, And those are obviously modulating the immune system. So clearly there is some blueprint and some path there to suggest that if we can find out really how the microbiome works because we've completely sequenced the entire human genome but we've only sequenced a fraction of the microbiome yeah there's still lots there that we that kind of comes out as being unclassified we don't know don't know what it is don't know what it is yeah, yeah. so i think there's a there's a whole world out there of microbiome research but for now i would say the kind of the takeaway to if you want to be somewhere near a super pooper is to do the small things like we said definitely yeah Uh, so, Blair, you had a question for me. I don't know if I'm going to get myself into trouble here, but fire away, please. Okay, yeah. Um, so, uh, you've obviously got a, a you know a presence on TikTok, social media, uh, and I just wondered, as a healthcare professional, kind of what's you know been your experience of that, both kind of good and also bad. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll tell you one story. Um, cl- uh, change a few details i one friday morning i drew the short straw and i had to do the hemorrhoid banding clinic okay yep, sounds like a, a short straw <laughs> sounds like a short straw so um i think someone the rotor person didn't like me so naturally you see all these patients with hemorrhoids and you band them so banding a hemorrhoid uh, for anyone watching involves inserting a what is essentially a bum gun that fires a high-speed elastic band onto the hemorrhoid and the hemorrhoid loses its blood supply and then falls off. So I saw this woman in her 40s 
She comes into the clinic, very pleasant, brought in a chaperone. And first thing, before I decide to band it, I need to examine the hemorrhoid and see how bad it is. Uh, and I examine it. And as obviously part of the examination requires you to do a digital rectal examination. I have to pass a gloved finger, you know, into the patient's bottom and yep. have a feel. Um, interestingly, I, I tell her how to get into the position. She gets on all fours uh, and just says, you know, examine their bottom. I'm examining her bottom. Chaperone's here, okay, just to cover myself. <laughs> While I'm, you know, knuckle deep inside her, she says, she turns round, looks at me. Always which, awkward. Always awkward. <laughs> no eye contact during digital rectal exams. Yeah. Right, rule number one, unofficial rule number one. Yep. And no talking either, yep. to rule number two, <laughs> right? Um, she looks at me and says, I follow you on Instagram. What do you say to that? What do you say to that? That is a conversation killer. Um, and, you know, rule number one rule, actually, of um, doing rectal examinations, never say thank you, you know? And I said thank you. I said, okay, thank you, I guess, whatever. Finished exam, fired a, you know, a rubber band onto a hemorrhoid. She was all happy with that. She sat down and... Um, I didn't really know what to say. I guess, uh, you know, follow and like for more. What yeah, did, did, you, you did, you get, did you get a like of a post that day? <laughs> I don't or, know, yeah. I had to yeah. be very careful. I had to be even more friendly than, you know, I'm, I had to usually am with patients and even more, oh God, you know, she follows me online and she knows everything about me. Um, so the, the moral of that story is that in terms of being a healthcare professional online, there's sometimes a very thin veil between your personal life, your kind of social media presence, and then being a professional in a hospital capacity. But I would say the positives significantly overweigh the negatives and it provides you with a, a platform to make change almost on a epidemiological level. When, you, when you've done a clinic, you know, we'll see what, 10 patients in two or three hours. That's what we're scheduled for. Yep. But if you make a video that gets two or three million views, you're potentially impacting a lot more people who can take away some information about how can I deal with constipation or how can I deal with this abdominal pain that I've got or what do I need to look out for? So I find that quite rewarding that you can reach a lot more people who may not have the same access to healthcare as someone in a different country. Absolutely, yeah. Um, big, uh, big reach to, to to people you 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 know you've never met, which is kind of amazing, really, as a healthcare professional to to be able to do that. Blair, thank you very much for coming on. And you know, if anyone has a desire to send their excrement to someone, please do not send it to the referral HQ. But we have my lovely friend, Dr. Blair Merrick. Please inundate him with your poo parcels, and uh, we'll leave a little notes as to where people can direct their specimens to. Uh, yeah, that would be uh, great. Uh, yeah, we're always happy to hear from potential stool donors. So it's legal to send your poo in the mail for science. If it ducks like a quack. If it ducks like a quack. This is one of my favourite segments of the show. It's where I'm going to be debunking all of these terrible myths that you hear. And one of the worst ones that I hear all the time, you should poo every day. And this is absolute nonsense. It is a myth. Everyone has their own individualized intestinal transit time. This means it's the time taken for the food to transit the entire intestinal tract, the small intestine and the large intestine. It could be anything from 18 hours to 24 hours or even beyond. Now, there is a Goldilocks rule that I like to follow when it comes to bowel health. 
Over, if you're going to the toilet more than three times a day, it's probably a bit too much. And if you're going less than three times a week, that's probably pushing you towards the side of constipation. So between three times a day and three times a week, that is in the normal range. That is in the Goldilocks zone. So don't listen to anyone that says you need to poo every day. If you do, great. If you don't, you need to look out for some of the other symptoms that could be a sign of constipation. You're constantly feeling bloated. You're going less than three times a week and you feel that you still need to empty your bowels even after you've gone or you have a massive dump which makes you feel incredible afterwards that's probably not good because you're probably not going enough but apart from that pooing every day is not a must now another thing i've often heard people say if you've eaten too much and you want it to digest as quickly as possible you lie on your left hand side there is some morsel of truth to this, not in terms of the digestion, but why it could be helpful. Now, it takes around 90 minutes for 50% of your stomach contents to empty into the small intestine. So if you've had a large meal at, say, 8pm, you probably don't want to be going to bed immediately. You want to probably at least wait an hour and a half or so, so your stomach is emptied a little bit, and so it can reduce your risk of acid reflux if you do that. If you lie on your left-hand side, in that position, your stomach is actually in a lower position than your esophagus, your food pipe, so there's less chance of acid reflux, of stomach contents going back up into the esophagus. And again, you'll reduce your risk of acid reflux. If you suffer with acid reflux, this might be a nice strategy to try, but otherwise, stick with the other concept first and leave a bit of a gap after eating your last meal of the day and before going to bed. Now, this is one of the banes of my existence as a GI surgeon. Probiotics can fix your gut health. This is one of the worst things that I see, and it's a modern-day scam. Now, when it comes to gut health, I found it very hard to believe that a one-size-fits-all probiotic that you can buy in your local supermarket can fix everyone's gut health, considering that everyone has an individual microbiome that is as unique as your DNA. Even identical twins don't have the exact same microbiome. That is how different your microbiome is. There are specific indications for which you can maybe prescribe probiotics. People with certain types of irritable bowel syndrome, with infectious diarrhea, particularly after antibiotics, some certain pediatric diarrhea disorders, and there's a list of a few conditions and patients who fit that cohort may benefit from probiotics, but otherwise it's more hype than health. Do not choose probiotics as your first line remedy to fix your gut health. Look at the other things, making sure you're moving regularly, you're sleeping well, you are having a plant-rich diet that isn't red meat heavy. Limit the amount of red meat that you take. Make sure you have a combination of soluble and insoluble fibers and resistant starches. Maybe throw in some fermented foods, kimchi, cheeses, sourdough bread, things like that. Small changes which can help your gut and it will probably be a lot cheaper than probiotics. Now, having said that, if probiotics seems to work for you, fine. Do that, but also do the things I just mentioned now. And otherwise, it's just basically expensive poop and urine. So, yeah, choice is yours. Just before we go, we have crowd science. And today, Michael has written in asking, I get nosebleeds three times a month. Is that normal or should I be worried? Now, nosebleeds or epistaxis is never normal 
And certainly the frequency of three times a month, it depends what you're doing. Are you involved in some sort of activity that increases the risk of that? Are you a chronic and violent nose picker? That's a risk factor for bleeding from the nose. Do you take blood thinning medication? Also increases the risk of uh, bleeds from the nose. Or have you recently had some sort of nose surgery or throat surgery, which can, again, increase the risk of uh, bleeds from the nose if it's a secondary bleed? If you're worried, if you're in doubt, you should see your doctor. There could be a list as long as your arm for the causes of nosebleeds. See a doctor who can examine your nose with specialised instruments and refer you on to an ear, nose, throat specialist if they're concerned in any way. And if, like Michael, you have an important question you want me to answer at Crowd Science, you can send a note at theReferralPod.com. Right, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, this content is for educational purposes only. Do not delay seeing your doctor if you have any serious problems or if it's life-threatening. Don't just rely on watching my YouTube videos, but obviously do that as well because they're very educational and it could help other people if you share them around all over the world. Now, this has been a Sony Music production. Production management was Jen Mystery. Videos were by Ryan O'Meara. Studio engineer was Ed Gill. Music by Josh Carter. DOP, James Weller. Vision mixer, Frankie Curry. Grace Laker and Hannah Talbot were the producers. And Gaynor Marshall is the executive producer. 